Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to Jared Diamond, who's the author of some of the most globally influential books of the last few decades, including Guns, Germs and Steel and Collapse. And today, we're going to be talking about Upheaval, which is a story of nations in crisis. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Jared, the setup for this book is one that I've myself thought about a lot recently, which is how you can draw analogies between personal crises, crises that individual human beings have and most of us have experience of, and the crises that befall nations. I've written and I've talked in this podcast about the possibility that America or American democracy is going through a midlife crisis. And that thought, I don't know where it came from, I guess, because I'm in the middle of my life too. As it were, once I thought it, I couldn't unthink it. I sort of started to see it everywhere. Did this idea come to you or is it something you think that probably in the background you've always instinctively felt that you can draw these analogies between the life of a human being and the life of a nation? No, the idea came to me very specifically because my wife Marie is a clinical psychologist who in the first year of our marriage was doing a specialty training in the area of psychotherapy called crisis therapy, which is not the usual several years to explore life issues, but consists of helping someone in a crisis. All of us go through them. Personal crises, breakup of a relationship, death of a loved one, getting fired, financial setback. A crisis is a situation where a person recognizes that the way they've been operating is just no longer working. They have to find a new way of coping in some specific respect. And the person has to be helped fast because there were suicides. And so each week, Marie and her fellow therapist would meet to go over all the clients and try to figure out who's making progress, who not. Marie would come home and tell me about the outcome predictors that she and her fellow therapist recognized, which are all familiar to us from our personal experience. But I realized that these outcome predictors, it seemed to me, also either apply to or suggest outcome predictors for national crises. So it's that very specific origin. And in the book, you describe a crisis of your own, which took place when you were much younger. And it was a crisis about where your life might be heading. Do you want to just briefly describe it? Because I have a particular question I want to ask you about that. But just just give us a flavor of the crisis you tell us about in the book. It was my most acute professional crisis of my life and one of the most acute crises ever in my life. I was a first-year graduate student um, at University of Cambridge um, in the physiology labs after having spent my life in the U.S. and been very successful in, in school and college. I was used to doing well. And in my first year as a graduate student, working with a great physiologist, it became obvious that I was no good with my hands. I was not succeeding with my experiments. It caused me to doubt whether I wanted to go into science at all. I had read Thoreau's Walden. I reread Thoreau's Walden, whose message is, do what you want regardless of what other people think. Maybe what I want isn't science. I thought of dropping out of science to become a simultaneous translator. The issue resolved itself by 
my parents happening to visit my father, suggesting to me, why don't you be patient and try another semester, and you can still drop out of science and change your life plan. The experiment started succeeding. I forgot about wall and philosophical doubts. But for me, it was a wake-up of an acute crisis where, in retrospect, some things were up for grabs, my career, and other things were not up for grabs. So if I can say so, to me, reading about it, it seemed like a quintessential young man's crisis, including the reading of Walden and everything else. And it was partly a crisis about a sense of a whole life ahead of you, a future, and being trapped on the wrong path. So some of the the national crises that you write about also strike me as being, so they're not young in the life of a nation, but say Japan at the end of the 19th century, or Australia, the second half of the 19th century, and Australia in the second half of the 20th century. These aren't young societies as such, and Japan's an ancient civilization. But in political terms, these were moments in the life of these nations where there was a kind of political future opening up, a new way of doing politics, or in the case of Australia, a kind of sense of independence. And it seems to me that stands in contrast with some of the other examples you give, particularly, say, contemporary Japan, which is not just an elderly society, but there are societies that are quite set in their ways. And it's it's closer to a crisis later on in a human life where it's much harder to change and people, as it were, much more reluctant to give up the things that have served them well. Do you think that's right, that where in a life the personal crisis happens has some analogy with the national crisis? When I think back on the countries that I know best because I've lived there and usually speak or spoke the language, one of them you would consider perhaps an early life cycle, namely Indonesia. Indonesia became independent in 1949 and quickly spiraled into crisis that blew up in a horrible genocide in 1965 when half a million Indonesians got killed. And So I've been working in Indonesia ever since in the aftermath of that genocide. You might say that's an early life crisis. Other countries that I discuss, Chile and the United States, both as countries about 200, 220 years old, Germany as a nation, a century old at the time that these things happen, Australia as a nation, a century old, Finland as a nation, a century old. Does my list include any really old country? Well, I began with Britain, of course, which is a 1,000 years old. So I would say that the national crises are all over the map, just as personal crises. They are the personal crises of young people, mine and age 21. They are the personal crises of old people. They are the personal crises of middle age. Those are developmental crises. But on top of that, there are crises that have no relation to the life stage. For example, the story with which I begin my book, The Coconut Grove Fire, We have 492 people in Boston got killed in 45 minutes, irrespective of whether they were young, middle-aged, or old. So I guess with something like Australia in the second half of the 20th century, there's the age of the nation and the founding of the nation, but there are those moments also in the life of, of a nation where a new sense of political possibility opens up. And it can include a sense of autonomy, too, that these choices are ours to make. Or in the case of Japan, the 19th century version, not the 21st century version, the kind of shock that comes with exposure to the outside world. And that sense that the choices that are made then are really going to determine a long future, which feels very different from, say, 21st century Japan. Not at the end of a story, but late on in a very successful story, a relatively successful story, where it's more about what you're willing to give up that's what feels to me part of the life cycle story. And we'll come on to America a bit later. Mm. That 
There are some crises where what triggers the crisis is you want to change, but you don't want to change because you're actually quite comfortable. That's one version of the midlife crisis, which was not your young man's crisis. Yours was that sense that there is so much possibility, I don't want to get it wrong. And I read in your books some of that in some of these national crises too, the sense of possibility, which is not, I think, our predicament now in the West or in 21st century Japan. I think we're in one of those, what are we willing to give up phases. You make me feel like a football referee in a fast-moving game where you drop flags until the game, and then you go over and pick up the flags. So among the things things that you mentioned, one thing that I would say is that my crisis at age 21, in a sense, is typical of age 21 crisis in that it was my first major life crisis. I didn't have the track record of having gotten through crises. Later in life, I've had other crises, professional, marriage breakup crisis. But I had been through this acute age 21 crisis, and from that I had come to the conclusion that no matter how bad it seems at the moment, I will get through it. Again, in New Guinea, working in New Guinea for the last 55 years, things go wrong in New Guinea. And the first times I found myself in a situation that seemed hopeless, where I didn't know how I would be alive the next day, the first time I was really upsetting. As I got in more and more New Guinea crises, I got used to the fact that I'll go to bed at night not knowing how I'll come out alive tomorrow, but I probably will come out alive tomorrow, and therefore I have confidence that I'll come out alive. That's one thing. Other things are that in the case of Australia, which became really self-governing, federated around 1900. One might say that the Australian crisis was an identity crisis. The Japan crisis of 1853 was a foreign attack crisis. Australia, after World War II, it was a question, who are we? Similar to the question for Britain today, revisiting the question of the 1960s, who are we? These who are we crises are slow to unfold They don't demand a quick solution, as did my graduate student crisis. Australia struggled from the time I first visited there in 1964, when Australia felt more British than Britain, to when I brought my son there for semester abroad. And the university campuses seemed like University of California, Berkeley, an Asian-majority campus. Australia gradually changed over the course of 50 years. So those are some picking up the flags on the soccer fields. I told you beforehand I'm going to spare you Brexit, not least because on our podcast we talk about Brexit way too much. One other thing about your young man crisis. So, so I don't know. I I work in Cambridge. I live in Cambridge. I can imagine what Cambridge might have been like in the late 1950s, coming to it from the United States. Am I right in feeling there was an element of culture shock in it? I mean, that it was quite an abrupt confrontation. I can imagine it being a very cold place, a sort of disdainful and cold place. I don't know if that was part of your story or not. But again, there's that experience that you can have as a young person. So I was thinking of a version in my life, which is when I was 18, I traveled to China for six months, not speaking the language. This is 1984. I can remember the physical experience of culture shock, just feeling completely at sea and terrified, but then getting over it and adapting, because you can adapt when you're 18. The shock was greater and the capacity to adapt was greater. Now I think... I wouldn't feel the same level of shock, but also I wouldn't be able to adapt so quickly in a, in a really challenging environment. So I don't know if Cambridge in the 1950s was like that, but in your national stories too, there is often that moment of shock, encountering something foreign, something from the outside, or a really acute moment, say in the Finland case, where you the precariousness of your situation comes as a kind of shock. 
in your story and in the, in the national stories, how important is the shock element? You are correct that in in the Cambridge case, while the crisis that I wrote about was my professional crisis then, there was also the cultural shock of arriving at Cambridge in 1958, which I believe was quite different from Cambridge as it is is now. Making friends for an American at Cambridge then really was difficult. There was therefore that loneliness shock of coming to Cambridge. There was the positive shock, the thrill, the enlightenment of being in a place where chamber music was played constantly, where as a pianist I could get together several nights a week with violinists and cellists and oboists and play badly, but at least we still played, of singing in Comes, the music society, of being able to travel to the continent. So they were the exciting things, they were also the miserable things, and that was the background against which my specific professional crisis took place. How important are shocks in the national crises that you tell? Because there does seem like a big difference between the slow burn crisis and the confrontation with something which is alien to the national experience. And quite a few of the stories you tell, they turn on that. They turn on the moment where the nation has to face something that it's profoundly uncomfortable with. That's right. National crises can either begin with a sudden shock or unfold slowly, just as personal crises. A marriage may deteriorate when on one day you get the shock of your spouse coming in and saying, I want a divorce, or they may deteriorate slowly over the course of a decade or two. Similarly, national crises, some of them begin with a shock. November 30, 1939, Finland invaded by the Soviet Union. That certainly catches attention. Or 1853, Meiji Japan, Commodore Perry's American fleet of steamships with with cannons sailing uninvited into Tokyo Harbor and saying, we're not leaving until we have a treaty to look after American shipwrecked sailors. So crises in general can begin either with an abrupt shock or slowly unfolding. In the case of Australia and Germany after World War II, Australia's identity crisis, who are we, unfolded slowly. Germany's coming to grips with Nazism unfolded slowly. There was a jolt and acceleration in the student revolts of 1968, but otherwise it unfolded slowly. And my sense of the United States today is that, yes, we had a sudden shock with the World Trade Towers attack of 2001, but what we are undergoing now is a more slowly unfolding shock of who are we and how are we going to speak to each other when different Americans hold very different points of view. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I want to come back to contemporary United States. One other thing I was struck by reading your book, and I went back to Collapse to reread that, because in that book you also draw some parallels between personal experience and collective experience. And so you're going to have to forgive me if you think I'm mischaracterizing the earlier book. But that was more about not just slow burn crises, but the possibility that societies have for 
long-term paths of self-destruction. You can get on a path and find it very hard to get off it as a society. And in that book, you explicitly say human beings sometimes do that too. And we also have innate difficulties. We have cognitive problems often recognizing the long-term consequences of our behavior. We are cognitively biased towards immediate gratification in various ways over long-term benefits. We have availability biases that we favor things that are immediately apparent to us. And that can make thinking about the arc of a life hard. But in that book, you also much more explicitly than in the new book say that there are big differences too, that collective action problems do not necessarily have a personal analogy and that some of the ways in which societies have to adapt to these kind of long-term destructive behaviours mean you have to step away from the, the personal to national analogy. So in this new book, is it because crises are different and more short-term that, that you think the analogy holds up? Because I also, reading this book, thought there are these collective action aspects to national crises which, by the account in Collapse, don't map onto the personal crisis. Absolutely. They're in writing a book about what we can learn from personal crises for national crises. I recognized that reviewers might quickly say, this is nonsense because nations are not expanded groups of people. I don't have to read this book. And at the end of page seven, I will throw it away and say it's a bad book. And therefore, at the end of page seven, where I said I'm going to explore national crisis in the light of personal crisis, I said, but we got to recognize that there are differences. Please read page eight, oh, hostile reviewer. And then I mentioned the differences. A prime example is the role of leadership. Comes up for nations, doesn't come up for people. Another prime example is the one you've mentioned, the role of interactions between groups, which is central in national crises um, and which is irrelevant in personal crises. I suppose I'm saying that in Collapse, you push a bit harder the idea that these collective action problems may come around from people, individuals behaving rationally, famously, the tragedy of the commons, prisoner's dilemma, whatever, where rational individual behavior produces massively suboptimal collective outcomes. So you don't emphasize that so much here. Again, here you talk more about leadership. In Collapse, you talk about the way in which political conflict between different interest groups can become the defining feature of how societies adapt. In this book, there's more of a sense that there is something collective in our understanding of who we are. Even if we're having an identity crisis, we're kind of going through it together. Is there a shift in your thinking? This book feels a little bit more like it treats nations as though they have one story to tell. There's no shift in my thinking, but there's a difference in the phenomena that I'm discussing. In my book, Collapse, I was concerned with the collapses or avoided collapses of societies in the past due especially to environmental problems. In the past, in a non-globalized world, societies could collapse one by one and nobody knew about it. So when Easter Island collapsed, nobody in the world knew about it. And when classic Maya civilization collapsed, they probably didn't even know about it in the Valley of Mexico and certainly not in um, uh, Europe. Whereas today in this globalized world, um, we don't have the luxury of the risk of a isolated environmental collapse in one country because one country, even if it's environmentally devastated like Somalia, has consequences for other countries. American troops have gone into, into Somalia. In short, I would say there's no difference in Jared Diamond's philosophy of trying to understand history between the two books. Instead, one book was on one set of phenomena and another on another set of phenomena. Let's talk about the United States because it's the one that in the contemporary setting seems like potentially the most dangerous national crisis, not least because of its 
possible global consequences. So a couple of things that struck me reading about the other examples that you have. So a couple of them, Chile, Indonesia, turn on coups, successful or unsuccessful coups are integral to the, the crisis story that you tell. And that's one of the classic ways in which a country displays that it's in a crisis, because there is this break point in its politics. Almost literally, you wake up one day and it's different. Another group have taken over and they've changed the rules. One of the features of contemporary American politics is that people talk about coups all the time, almost in a kind of metaphorical way. Trump supporters say that the Mueller report is part of a coup by the FBI. Trump's critics say Trump himself has already initiated the coup because he's infiltrated the government. He's no longer responsive to the rule of law. There's been a kind of inflation of the language of the moment of crisis, the coup, without there being actual coups, nothing like the Pinochet coup. That seems to me a, a real part of the problem of 21st century politics. It's almost the inflation of the language of crisis. We see them everywhere, these things that are meant to mark the moment we know our country's in real trouble. But we use them, both sides of the political divide, all sides, use them as kind of markers that we think we've reached the moment of truth. And the other side just doesn't agree. That's part of our problem now. We talk the language of crisis too freely. That's a good point. I, I would say it's a mis- it is a misuse of the word. It's a metaphor that promotes confusion rather than understanding. The United States does face the risk of an end of democracy today. And in a standing book that I acquired last night, written by a fellow whose first name is David and who is you, you pointed out that there are different ways for democracy to end. You looked at it in the context of many different countries. I looked at it in the context of the United States, comparing the U.S. and Chile. Both the United States and today and Chile, when I was living there in the 60s, were undergoing a breakdown of political compromise, as was Indonesia. In Chile and in Indonesia, this led to a military coup. In the United States, it will not lead to a military coup because the U.S. military has never intervened in politics. But there are other ways for democracy to end, as you have written, besides a military coup, and that's what's going on now in the United States. It promotes misunderstanding to apply the word coup. It instead promotes understanding to see the analogy to breakdown and political compromise, which is the phenomenon that undid Chile and which is threatening the United States and which may be threatening Britain now. But the outcome, even if it's bad in the U.S., is going to be by a different mechanism. And you talk about some of the things that would need to happen for the United States to get out of its crisis. As with all of these things, there's almost like a chicken and egg puzzle here, which is a failing political system, a previously successful political system that's reached a a moment where it's, I think it's stuck. It's not broken. It's kind of stuck. Things need to change socially to get that political system working again. So you talk about more investment in education, about more long-term thinking, thinking about the kind of society that would allow this political system to start moving again. But that political system is going to have to affect those changes. It's hard to see how those changes are going to come out of a, a social version of you know, national renewal. Politics is still the determining force here. So the system that needs social change to rescue itself needs to affect that change. And that, for me, is the thing that really gives me pause when I think about how America is going to get out of this. If the system was capable of affecting that change, it wouldn't be in this crisis. Here's a case where I see a role of leadership. The role of political leadership is much debated by historians. Um, Historians 
today tend to take the point of view that leaders reflect their circumstances and that Churchill and Hitler were both severely constrained by circumstances. It seems to me that leaders make a difference under some circumstances. An example is de Gaulle, France, 1958. Without de Gaulle as a leader, France probably would have remained stuck in the mess that it had gotten in in the late 1950s. De Gaulle was very clever in leading the French in a direction that initially they did not want to be led in. In the case of the United States today, and we can get on to Britain today, what could a leader of the United States do? We have an example now of a, of a leader, um, President Trump, who's done a lot to make things worse. If he had been, say, his Republican predecessor, Bush, Bush failed to make things better, but he did not explicitly make things worse. Trump has done a lot to make things worse. That's an example of a bad role of a leader. As an example of a leader who could take America out of its divisive mess today, just before coming here, I stopped to see my son Max in Boston. Max is 32 years old. I grew up in Boston. I thought I knew Boston. Max, what would you like to do today? Max said, let's go see the battlefields of Concord and Lexington, where the American Revolution began. I've been to Concord and Lexington. I thought, there's no way I'm going to react to this emotionally because it's so familiar to me. And instead, when I went to battlefields of Concord and Lexington with Max for the first time in a couple of decades, for me, it was an almost shattering experience. This was where American liberty began. This was where Americans got shot and killed. It was the beginning of the American Revolution. An American leader who wanted to unify rather than divide the United States should go to Concord and Lexington on April 18th, the anniversary, and talk about the significance of Concord and Lexington. A leader should go to Ellis Island, the immigration portal for most modern Americans, and talk about the significance of Ellis Island because all Americans today, even Native Americans, are immigrants. In short, a leader could bring us out of crisis by not dividing us, but by focusing on the things that are admirable and that bring Americans together. And for Britain today, what could bring you out of Brexit is going to require a leader unlike any of the ones that I see operating today in Britain, who will emphasize the things that bring British people together, whether they are descendants of William the Conqueror or arrived in the late 1940s from the West Indies. What is it that all um, British people share and of which you can all be proud? That's the role of leadership, and that's what de Gaulle did successfully in France. So I keep offering to steer you away from Brexit, and you keep bringing us back to it. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions about the United States because so the founding story, which is obviously really important for everyone's understanding of what they think America is and what it's become. Are there leaders, you think, in the current information climate, in the way that people now experience news, who can get a fair hearing on this question? Because it's very hard when you watch contemporary democratic politics, but particularly in the United States, to imagine the leader. I mean, one can imagine it in a hypothetical world, which is not our world, but to imagine the leader today who will get a hearing from the other side when, say, for instance, they visit some of those sites that you describe and try and tell a story about what that means for the history of America. I mean, it will be a very plausible story for some people, but for other people, they won't even acknowledge the right of that person to tell that story. It is true that there's the concern about whether they'll get a hearing, and that requires real political skill. 
examples of that political skill I've mentioned de Gaulle. Winston Churchill in May 1940, Churchill confronting Lord Halifax within the British cabinet in that the week of 1940 that culminated in Dunkirk. Lord Halifax had proposed an accommodation with Hitler that might involve giving Malta and Gibraltar to, to trustworthy Hitler in order to have peace. Churchill began the week in a weak position knowing that he was distrusted by even his conservative supporters. And he very cleverly worked through that week to outmaneuver Lord Halifax and get his position to prevail at the end of the week. So you're correct that it would be an uphill struggle for a leader today. Of the American Democratic candidates in the offing, I think Bernie Sanders would not succeed in doing it because Bernie Sanders is divisive in the sense of appealing to a subclass of the Democratic Party and certainly not to all Americans. Joe Biden has more potential. There will be Americans who are suspicious of someone 76 years old, which I consider no grounds of suspicion, being at age 81 and the height of my career. But Joe Biden is more middle ground. Obama certainly was middle ground and appealed broadly. So it's going to require... Um, a person who behaves himself in a clever, calculating way. What gives you the greatest cause for optimism when you look outside the United States, but more broadly? Because you end your book with the global perspective. In a way, you do go back to the themes of collapse. You talk about the environmental crisis. You talk about other crises to do with the way we currently use resources. It's a different kind of crisis because there isn't a global narrative there isn't even a life story I think we can tell. There's the life story of the planet, there's the life story of the species, but it's nothing like nations talking about their history, where they've come from, where they want to go in future. When you look at it on the planetary scale, what gives you grounds for optimism that this is the kind of crisis that we are capable of getting out of? Because again, leadership doesn't seem like the answer because there is no global leadership. I needed to find grounds for optimism because when I wrote the next last chapter of my book, Upheaval, on the problems of the world, after all the other chapters were on problems of nations, my initial conclusion was pessimistic. If you take my last chapter and chop off the last six pages and imagine the book ending before the last six pages, you would say, this is a pessimistic chapter in which I seem to be arguing that the world is not going to get out of its present crises. But if the last six pages were prompted by my learning from discussions with friends about the successes of the world in the last 40, 50 years in solving really difficult, complex problems, not through obvious UN leadership, but in multiple ways, UN, WHO, other organizations. The really complicated problems that we've solved in the last five decades include the delineation of coastal economic zones. God, wherever you have two adjacent countries with overlapping continental shells, there's a case of conflict. And there were hundreds of these cases of conflict around the world. But through negotiations that took a couple of decades, the world managed to arrive at a delineation of coastal economic zones. Subsequently, the reason that we are just beginning now to mine mineral nodules from the deep ocean is that 
30 years ago, the technology was available, but there wasn't a legal framework. If a boat anchored to mine the minerals, another boat could anchor 200 yards away to pull up the same minerals. Again, through long and complicated negotiations, an agreement was reached to delineate rights in the open sea, and most difficult of all, to satisfy landlocked countries, because Bolivia, Laos, and Mongolia obviously did not want the royalties from the deep ocean um, nodules to go to the countries with seacoasts when Bolivia, Mongolia, and Laos don't have any seacoasts. But agreement was finally reached whereby the landlocked countries get 15% of the royalties. That wasn't agreed on the first day. It took complicated negotiations. Or the negotiations to get chlorofluorocarbons out of the atmosphere. Or the Marpole negotiations to ensure that oil tankers on the high seas are double-hulled. Or the WHO negotiations to eliminate smallpox. Or the negotiations ongoing now to get rid of polio. What it means is that the world does have a track record of solving really difficult problems. It may be that the problems that we face now of climate change and unsustainable resource use are more difficult than the problems of chlorofluorocarbons and smallpox, but at least the world has a track record, which is not widely appreciated, of being able to solve the most difficult problems. And therefore, I'm rather than pessimistic, I'm cautiously optimistic. In the national stories you tell, particularly when there's a shock, it's a shock that's experienced nationally. Say, take the Finland case, the one that you start with. A very tight-knit national community shares in the shock. At the global level, it's hard to think because the kind of shock that would be felt globally might be too much for any of us to withstand. But with these really acute challenges that we face, particularly around climate, do you really think that in the absence of at least some kind of shock that that transmits outside of a national context, we're capable of dealing with it? Because the national story, like you say, it does point in a pessimistic direction. We don't have the cohesion. We're not going to experience these things the same. And again, the thing that gives me pause is the thought that the shock that we would experience collectively at a global level is the shock we couldn't withstand. Climate change is a good example because it seems to me that there we are already close to doing something. Climate change affects every country. The United States and China, which have divergent views in other respects, both the United States and China are suffering now from climate change. My city of Los Angeles, within the last couple of years, has had the wettest and also the driest year in history. The whole intermontane west in the United States is suffering from climate change. China has widespread suffering from climate change. Before Trump, there was an initial principled agreement between the U.S. and China, followed by a principled agreement involving the EU, Japan, and India concerning climate change resulting in the Paris Agreement. But those five entities, four countries in the EU, those account for, what, 61% of global climate emissions. And if those five entities, countries, had agreed that all of them are suffering from climate change, which is true, and had therefore agreed on a policy, the other 39% of emitters would have been forced to follow the lead because those 61% could impose tariff barriers on countries that, that would not cooperate. So the result was the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement has not materialized yet because of the opposition of our unfortunate um, president, but the Paris Agreement is going to come back because the reasons why it was proposed in the first case are 
are there and they're getting more and more serious. In the case of the United States, just as in Australia, Australia has had a very bad climate year this past year with record heat and also record rains. The United States, we're going to have some more bad climate years. We've had some bad hurricane years on the East Coast. More of that, already 70% of Americans believe in the reality of climate change and believe that it's caused by human action. So I see a Paris Agreement materializing within the next half dozen years, Trump or no Trump. But in the Australian case, we've just had an election there. And we talked about this on our podcast recently. And I heard from people in Australia who say, as always, it's much more complicated than a simple kind of, there was one party who were pushing on climate and the other party who weren't. The dial has moved and both of the leading parties in Australia are recognising the reality of it. But the party that was offering commitment to do something about it that would involve some element of at least redistribution and possibly sacrifice, lost. And there is also that question that in the absence of a greater collective shock, Democratic politics does have a tendency to defer the difficult decisions. That's true. Um, I could respond in two ways. One, welcome to life on our planet Earth. Welcome to democracy. (laughs) Welcome to democracy, where things do not move forward inexorably in the right direction. They move forward two steps and back one step and two steps. As Obama said, they zig and they zag. They, They zig and they zag. Yeah, that's one thing. The second thing is that we will get shocks. So in the United States, we had the shock of the hurricane that destroyed New Orleans. That shock wasn't quite enough. We need and we will get hurricanes that destroy a few cities on the East Coast that will really get the attention of citizens of Washington and New York if the next hurricane is not in New Orleans, but it's in Washington and New York. And you can bet with the way things are developing, we will have hurricanes in Washington and New York to get the attention of American voters. And I'm not sure if that's an optimistic or a pessimistic (laughs) message to end on. In the long run, it's optimistic. Jared Diamond's book is called Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. We will tweet the link at tppodcast underscore. I tried to steer him away from Brexit. There is no getting away from it. And there's no getting away from British politics. And next week, we will be talking about it again. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Politics.